what I'm seeing is a lot of companies are opting for lower spending to conserve cash, but then as a result, their growth rates are sort of getting pulled back. In the context of that, it's not to say that they're not spending on growth, but they're doing such in a much more measured way. So the idea of being agile is basically they're picking and choosing the growth initiatives where they have the best return on investment. This may lead to a bias towards initiative that might have more near-term returns versus longer returns. You know, you might trade off, you know, example, if you have something you can invest $1 million today for a $3 million return next year, or if you can invest $1 million today for something that's going to return $10 million, but not for three years, it could be right now that even though the second option is a much better return on investment, it's too far out right now. Cash is king right now. So you're going to choose something that's an attractive investment opportunity, but maybe not the best long-term ROI because it gives you more near-term cash. Those are some of the decisions that companies are trying to prioritize and make right now. Hi, I'm Danny, And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. This week, we're super excited to have one of our lovely guests, Debbie Rossler from Brooklyn and Associates on the podcast. Debbie has worked with us on a previous webinar before, and you know she's one of our great friends now. So I'm really happy to welcome her back here with us. Debbie is also an on-demand CFO at Brooklyn, and she has over 20 years of experience with companies in a broad range of industry and sizes from early stage to Fortune 500. So she's seen basically the whole roster. And she has expertise in financial planning analysis, corporate strategy, and financial modeling, and also helped companies establish finance and accounting functions to identify opportunities to improve business processes. Thank you, Debbie, for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Really great that we're talking again about startups and also how they can really manage their spending and their scenario planning for the future today. So um, maybe we can start a little bit more about just learning more about Brooklyn, actually. So within this time, obviously, it's been pretty challenging for a lot of startups. What are some of the biggest challenges that your clients have been facing during this time? I think it's probably two of the biggest challenges that many of my clients are facing are concerns around raising capital and how to extend their runway. So Berkeley Associates, we work with early stage, generally venture-backed companies that are usually between the seed and series B stages. And we work as uh, part-time CFO consultants with these firms, as well as providing bookkeeping and accounting support. In terms of concerns around fundraising, um, what we're finding right now is that the venture capital fundraise environment is certainly very challenging right now. And it's really uncertain as to when the market's going to improve. For companies that are currently in the market to raise capital, fundraising was all but shut down immediately following the COVID-19 shelter-in-place orders, as most venture firms really focused on triaging with their existing portfolio companies. There were a few exceptions for deals that were already in the works that did close during that initial time, but that was sort of few and far between. We're starting to see that a few deals are, you know, are starting to close a little more, but certainly not at the volume that we were seeing pre-COVID-19. And we're also starting to get some indication that there's going to be some meaningful changes in deal terms in terms of pricing and other factors. So that obviously makes things quite different. In the context of um, more challenging fundraising, the other thing that we're seeing is companies are really seeking to extend their cash runway. 
So what they're looking to do is delay the time for which when they'll need to raise capital until the fundraising market improves, or at least give them more time to raise capital. And as a general goal, we're advising to our clients, if at all possible, to try to extend their cash runway to 24 months from now. And that's really, really good advice. Right now, as a lot of um, finance experts are saying, cash is really king and not super surprised that right now capital is really hard to get. So again, it's about preserving what you have right now and seeing you know, how long you can last for basically until this whole thing kind of boils over and hopefully they find a new strategy to increase their revenue, increase their profit margins. So I'm curious also, Debbie, I know you are a big um, believer in this um, at Berkland also. So why is scenario planning especially important throughout this time? Scenario planning really helps companies to navigate uncertainty and plan ahead so they can Mm -hmm. anticipate and quickly respond to the changing landscapes. So while we're currently facing an economic downturn, there's a lot of uncertainty as to how deep the recession is going to be and how long it's going to last. So by planning ahead for a range of economic scenarios, companies can develop plans Um, that respond to each of the landscapes and that they can pivot quickly so that they can ensure that they survive and potentially even thrive in the current environment. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, scenario planning, it kind of sounds very straightforward. But, you know, for me, who's not a finance expert, it does seem a little bit intimidating. And I know for some startup owners or founders, it might be their first time actually doing scenario planning because they've never actually seen a black swan event, as though they're calling it, with COVID-19 and the downturn. So what actually goes into creating a plan and how can people start doing this? Yeah. So, so I'm recommending my clients apply a five-step approach to scenario planning. This approach was actually outlined in a guide that was written by a venture capital firm called First Round Capital. And the name of the guide is the Founders Field Guide for Navigating this Crisis. Google it. You'll find it right away. I highly recommend it. It's a really great read. But I'll walk you through some of the five steps that they outline. And I'm working with many of my clients on this approach. The first step is that you want to start by identifying what are your key uncertainties. So, you know, what are maybe six to 10 uncertainties that were introduced by COVID-19 for the next year that are going to help to inform your planning cycle? You want to focus on the items that are going to have the most significant impact on your company's prospects um, and strategies. So it might include macroeconomic uncertainties, epidemiological uncertainties, uncertainties for your market or for your customers and stakeholders. But you're going to figure out what those uncertainties are. And then the second step is you're going to take those uncertainties and you're going to bucket them into scenarios. So as a general rule, I often do three scenarios. You could do more than three, but I probably wouldn't do less. It's pretty common that you'll see a company will do a best case scenario, a worst case scenario, and then something in the middle that you might call the base case. Maybe that's the plan that you're going to sort of be going after initially. And for some companies right now, it could make sense to tie those scenarios to what the economic recovery looks like. So for example, the best case scenario would be a V-shaped recovery, where the sharp drop in economic activity we've seen is going to be followed by a swift rebound. You know, Maybe a base case might be a U-shaped recovery, where the bottom is a little less clearly defined and the growth recovers, but takes a little longer to gain, gain ground. And then, you know, maybe the worst case would be an L-shaped recovery where you have a severe recession or maybe even a depression where even after the recovery, growth takes a while to recover. So after you've figured out the scenarios, the third step is to craft responses to each of these scenarios. So to some extent, the scenarios are the items that are out of your control, but what's in your control are the responses and the contingency plans you put in place 
to offset that so that you can maintain your a desirable level of cash runway. So what are some of the contingency plans that you can be putting in place? It can be areas of cost reductions, whether it be headcount or other areas. It can be changes in product direction. So maybe delaying product launches or slimming down some of the products that you currently have. There's a wide range of responses you can make to offset some of the impacts of the different scenarios. Once you figured out the scenarios and the responses to them, the next step, step four, is to look for what the trigger points are. And essentially what the trigger point means is it's what designates that you should move from one scenario to the next. You may be starting in the base case, but what's going to indicate the point where you pull the trigger to actually move into the worst case or into the best case? Some examples of some of the trigger points could be things like, has there been an extension to the shelter in place? So maybe you had certain assumptions around when that was going to get lifted and then that shifted. It could have to do with unemployment rates. Are they higher than what you initially anticipated or lower? It could have to do with your own internal company performance. So is revenue growing faster or slower than you expected? Is there higher customer churn? Those type of factors. But if you start in there with the trigger points a, a, a tied to each scenario, you know at which point you need to be shifting between the scenario. And then the fifth step is the sort of cycle back. That's the revisit, revise, and repeat. And basically that what it comes down to is a scenario plan is not a one and done activity. You know, and traditionally for a lot of companies, a lot of startups often do long range planning on a very periodic basis, often tied to fundraising. So they might do it once every two plus years. And then, you know, in between that, they might be doing planning, but on a shorter term time horizon. But in the current environment, you really need to be more regularly updating your long range plan and looking at what your runway looks like and also figuring out the scenario that we started with initially. Is that where we're headed or do we need to start pivoting? I think I really love that point, especially the last point there, the revision, because I feel like a lot of times when we talk about, you know, financial strategy, um, especially during times of crisis, it's like, okay, what do we need to do right now? But, you know, once right now passes, then are you still iterating? Are you still trying to see if it's relevant? So I'm really glad um, within your recommendations that it's the fifth point is actually to look, relook at it. So that's actually really, really good feedback. And for the viewers and the listeners that are listening to this, I will link what Debbie was referring to in the blog post. So if you wanted to hop on to the Procurify blog post, we'll make sure we have that model there for you. So with the scenarios, like right now, I kind of understand that it's a five-step process. We've got to identify some key uncertainties, and we also need to make sure how to address them. What exactly constitutes as a key uncertainty? And if you can give us like a few examples in real life. Yeah, so it's going to entirely vary by company. So there's not mm-hmm. a standard uncertainty, but I sort of give it a few buckets of possible uncertainties. So macroeconomic uncertainties for some companies that could have to do with at a broad level or the economic policy interventions that the government's putting in place. Is that going to be preventing enduring structural damage to the economy? It could have to do with levels of spending, you know, maybe tied to your specific industry. So, you know, if you're a restaurant company, you know, obviously, you know, what's happening with people going to restaurants and, or, or ordering taken epidemiological uncertainties is another category. So will public health response effectively control the spread of the virus? Is that relevant to your company? And then, you know, obviously some of the other uncertainties would be very specific to your market customers and and other stakeholders. Yeah. And those are some really great examples, especially when I'm not really sure what constitutes as part of the category. So I'm glad that you were able to kind of explain it in a non-financy way. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Yeah. So with scenario planning, you've kind of talked about what it is and how to best approach it. 
But is there any particular tools that you could use for this? Or is there like a template that leaders can really start doing for? Yes, I have a few tools that I can suggest. One is actually a visual framework of how to approach scenario planning and um, this is something that, you know, we'll also make sure this linked as part of the post as well. There's a three by three matrix that Sequoia Ventures published that really gives a good approach as to how to approach a framework for how to approach scenario planning. And you can also find it if you go online and Google the matrix for COVID-19. It basically gives a visual representation of the relationship between scenarios that companies are facing, the plans that they're adopting to address these scenarios, and then the resulting cash runway. And the idea there is that, like I said, the recommendation is that companies try to target at least um, 24 months of cash runway. So what is the best intersection of given the scenario and the response you, you've chosen? Have you driven sufficient cash runway um, to be able to survive through this period? So that's one tool that um, I think I found to be really impactful. Another key tool is, you know, fundamentally just a you know a basic three-year financial model. What's maybe different here is that, you know, whereas in the past you might have done you know, a three-year financial model for only one scenario. Now you're looking at building three separate versions of the model or maybe even more. And you're also needing to build the model on a monthly basis because a key output of the model is figuring out what's your cash runway, how many more months of cash do you have left? So mm-hmm. whereas in the past, some companies prefer to potentially model on a quarterly basis. Um, I actually generally prefer monthly anyways, but it's definitely not the time to be doing a quarterly model. We, you need to have a good monthly view as to as to when you're going to need to raise capital next. In terms of building a financial model, my recommendation is also that you should build one that is always to build one that includes an income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow statement, and that it ties to the chart of accounts in your financial system. So whether you're using QuickBooks Online or Xero or some other accounting system, you want to make sure that the structure that you set up for your financial model ties with how you're actually booking your your financial you know, accounting results. And a key part of that is that as you're going through on a month-by-month basis, that enables you to easily compare how is your performance compared against what your plan was. And it'll give you an indication of when it's time to pivot between different scenarios. But it also facilitates you updating the forecast on a go-forward basis. So what I'd recommend every company does is they build their scenario plan And then every month they update with actual results and then roll forward the forecast and and see what the business looks like. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. A third tool that I'm also recommending is waterfall analysis. That involves keeping track of how your forecast for certain key metrics evolves over time. And this is something that I think we'll also copy in an image of this to the blog because it's it's sort of something that's easier to sort of see visually. But at a high level, what it is, is it gives you a monthly representation of your forecast for certain key metrics, whether it be revenue and cash, you know, if you're a SaaS company, it could have to do with your new ARR. It, it's whatever metrics are relevant for your company, but you're looking at what the monthly forecast was for that in your initial plan. And then in the next month, when you update your forecast, you're showing how it changes. And basically each month, you're going to do an updated forecast and look how the metrics move over time. And it's really a helpful tool to keep track of some of the trigger points that are going to help you determine when you're going to need to shift between scenarios. Because what often happens is on a monthly basis, you maybe as you update a forecast, you might have small incremental changes, but in aggregate, they've actually added up to big changes against the original plan. And so you don't get sort of lost in the detail of small changes and you actually are more cognizant of when it's time to make a shift. Wow, these are super actionables that, you know, leaders can take right away. You structured it so well, too, where it's like number one, number two, number three. 
Oh, great. Really awesome. (laughs) That's how people think, right? (laughs) Yeah, of course, right? It's like the process. How do we make sure we're streamlining it, right? And honestly, I really feel for a lot of the finance leaders that are leading the charge in their organizations right now, because it is a hard time. And, you know, with all the things that you've mentioned, that is a lot of work for them to do on top of what even they were doing before. So kudos to you if you're listening to this and this is something that you're working on right now within your company. So curious, Debbie, with the scenario planning, does it also kind of differ from stage to stage? Let's say if you're like a seed stage startup versus maybe like a very mature startup, like a Series C. I would say that in general, the approach to scenario planning may not vary that much between seed, series A, series B companies. However, one thing that could drive a difference in sort of the approach would could be based on funding stage would have to do if the market for raising VC becomes more challenging for one funding round versus another. So for example, if you if you look back at the 2008 recession, Sort of after the fact, you look at all the data of venture capital fundraisers, what you see is that there was a much more dramatic decline for Series B and Series C funding rounds than there was for Series C and Series A. And not only was there a more dramatic decline, but it lasted for a lot longer. And so what that means is if you were to go back to that time, those companies to survive through that period would likely have needed to extend their cash runway even more you know, than perhaps the earlier stage companies that had potentially more access to capital. It's too soon to tell right now if the same trend is going to be prevalent for the current recession as was in 2008. So I can't say that it's, you know, that Series B and C companies need to extend runway more than seed and A at this point. It's too soon to tell, but it's quite possible though there will be some discrepancy between the different funding rounds that will need to be addressed via different types of planning. And I think that is really good advice because it's always to be safer than sorry, right? Even if you see some historical indicators, it's always great to think, okay, maybe this will actually follow what history played out. So it's always nice to have more runway than not. Yeah. And what I'd say in terms of the better safe than sorry, you know, what I'm advising all my companies right now, all my clients right now is that the cash balances that they're planning for now are actually higher than the plans that they set at the beginning of the year. So when, you know, before Mm -hmm. all COVID-19 happened, they had certain ending cash balances that they they were targeting. I've actually advised all my companies to actually plan more conservatively and target higher cash balances. And the reason for that is that you're facing so much uncertainty that even if you have these contingency plans in place that are going to drive cost savings, if if enough time passes, there's only so much savings you're actually going to be able to realize, right? So Mm -hmm. if, if you wait six months to make some cost cuts, well, that's six months of spending that you've made along the line. So the more extra cushion that you can be setting yourself up with right now, given the uncertainty, the better position you're going to be in. So we talked a lot about cutting costs and making sure that we're extending the runway. But um, startups are always about being agile, always making sure that they're growing throughout this time. So as like a finance leader, how can you balance that kind of growth and being agile, but also being in control of the burn rate? So I'd say, you know, in, in the current environment, many companies are having to choose between trade-offs of you know, targeting really aggressive top-line growth rates and potentially cutting spending. And on balance, mm-hmm. what I'm seeing is a lot of companies are opting for lower spending to conserve cash, but then as a result, their growth rates are sort of getting pulled back. In the context of that, it's not to say that they're not spending on growth, but they're doing such in a much more measured way. And so mm-hmm. you know, the idea of being agile, how I interpret that is, is basically they're picking and choosing the growth initiatives where they have the best return on investment. 
So Mm -hmm. this may lead to a bias towards initiative that might have more near-term returns versus longer returns. You know, you might trade off, you know, example, if you have something you can invest 1 million today for a 3 million return next year, or if you can invest 1 million today for something that's going to return 10 million, but not for three years, it could be right now that even though the second option is a much better return on investment, it's too far out right now. Cash is king right now. And so you're going to choose something that's an attractive investment opportunity, but maybe not the best long-term ROI because it gives you more near-term cash. Those are some of the decisions that companies are trying to prioritize and make right now. And I love what you said there, because I think I saw a Twitter post from Jason Fried, the CEO of Basecamp, and he says something about how we should start changing our language even around this, where startup leaders are always using the words burn rate. But he was like, well, I would actually challenge that and call it the spend rate because burn is like you're just burning cash. But spending is much more strategic, like what you're mentioning, actually asking yourself, is this actually the good ROI? So I feel like it's almost a rude awakening for startups right now where because they have to extend the runway and they have to make sure that they're putting every dollar to where it actually counts, that it's allowing them to be more fiscally responsible, too. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you think um, company spend culture will change as a result of remote work and after this whole COVID-19 saga? I think overall, there's going to be a tighter focus on cost containment. And one thing that I'm really encouraging my clients to do is to be somewhat transparent and to share financial performance and what their plans are with their employees. Um, Because first of all, it helps to build trust and confidence, but it also helps to instill a sense of ownership for all employees and driving to the targeted results. The message right now really needs to be we're all in this together and employees should be sharing that times are tight and that they need to do their part to help minimize costs and help the company extend the runway so that everyone can succeed. I love that message. This really kind of plays well with a lot of the startup team culture too, right? It's about teamwork and accountability. And, you know, you're growing a company together, especially the earlier stage startups. It's kind of why um, I'm in a startup personally. So really glad that you mentioned that. One of the things that's nice about startups is that in most cases, people have equity in the company as well, options or otherwise. And so there is already a sense of ownership. But I think the more transparent and, you know, sharing in how you're approaching this, I think you can increase that sense of ownership even more. Absolutely. Our CEO likes to call this the democratization of spend, you know, making sure that each person has a role to play when it comes to the spend culture of an organization and, you know, being responsible with the company's money. And I think Moving forward past COVID, we'll start to see more of that, which is really exciting. Oh, great. I love that. That's cool. Yeah. So curious, Debbie, let's talk a little bit more about the technology side, because obviously being someone who provides technology for startups, this is super exciting. So what tools do you think are kind of essential for a startup to consider as it starts scaling up its internal controls, as it starts moving past the new normal, as people call it? So financial controls are definitely a key focus of what I work on with clients when I start up. You know, I've unfortunately had a couple of clients who had historical issues with embezzlement before I started working with them. Um, And so I recognize the sort of critical importance of putting in place a really solid controls foundation. And it's really one of my top priorities when I initially start working with clients. There's actually a matrix we have on the um, Brooklyn Associates website. We'll provide a link to it that lays out startup financial controls. So the kind of controls that we recommend putting in place. And I encourage companies to check this out. You know, really at the core, a lot of the key aspects of internal controls have to do with separation of duties and approval processes. And at the earliest stage, some of the key systems that we recommend to a lot of our clients have to do with um, approval processes around spending. So many of our clients use bill.com. It's an accounts payable 
tool where all the vendor invoices are routed into the system. And then there's an approval process whereby the department manager or this and or the CEO and or the CFO are able to actually approve the bills before they're paid. Um, it also mm-hmm. has a separation of duties component. So it, it prevents one person being the holder of the checkbook and writing checks, which obviously creates risk. It enables one person to be entering the invoices and then a separate person to be approving it or even multiple people. So I think that's a, that's a great system. Another one that we use with many of our clients is a system called Expensify, which is used for employee expense re- reimbursements. So if you're going out and spending money on travel, perhaps on your personal credit card, you use Expensify as the system to be able to get reimbursed for that. And again, that's a system that has approval processes. So you don't have people going out there rampantly spending crazy money. <laughs> obviously, these days, not a lot of travel money, but uh, obviously that's always yeah. been, um, in general, is obviously an, an area of potential concern. And so by having um, a systematic approach to ensuring that um, employees, managers are reviewing their ex- you know, expense reimbursements and approving them, that helps to really put some good controls in place. I love that. And I know it's super funny sometimes hearing from earlier stage startups where it's like, oh, our CEO has to personally sign off on every single email request for approvals. And we're like, I don't know how scalable that is. I'm not even a CFO and I know that's not scalable. (laughs) It's certainly the case at, at the seed stage and often at the series A stage that CEOs often really do have their finger on the pulse of that. But as you start getting later, you really need to start getting to the point that you have budgets distributed by departments and owners, and then you have different approval authorization matrices where the CEO doesn't need to approve everything, but perhaps approving stuff as it gets to larger spend levels. Is there like a benchmark that you would recommend startups to follow, like maybe series A stage, series B, when you you start really putting into something like a tool in place? I would say um, my frame of reference is a little bit SaaS companies, so I think this could vary by, you know, the stage could vary based on the type of company, but I would say as you're getting into series B um, mm-hmm. is, so sorry, sorry. putting the, the tools like Expensify and Bill.com in place, I would put that in place from day one, because frankly, having any of those, those types of processes in paper and offline is incredibly inefficient and those systems pay for themselves immediately. They're not that terribly expensive. So certainly putting them in place. In terms of distributing ownership, in terms of approval processes, I think by the time you're at Series B, it makes sense to start having department-level financials and, and separating out the ownership. So that's sort of what I've seen as sort of the break point. I do find that with a lot of my clients, as you're getting towards Series B is when I'm trying to put in place department budgets so that they start getting to be ownership. It's a bit of a transition for people to get used to not the CEO being the only one that owns the budget. So it can take a little bit of time to evolve there, but that's end of series A, series B is sort of what I'm typically sort of targeting that. It's really interesting hearing that from you because sometimes when we speak to founders, they are always like, hmm, when is the right time to transition to this process? We're like, when is the right time? And I don't think there's ever really like a right time per se, but I guess it depends on the type of company that you work with and, you know, how your team culture is like even. Because maybe for some CEOs that we've seen, they still want that kind of control, even as the company starts growing a little bit. So it really is talking through and, you know, maybe hiring like a finance leader like yourself to have a third party to really assess the situation. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's also options to have dual approval levels for a period of time for the CEO to get comfortable with that. So it can be that, you know, you start and you have some budget leaders coming in and sort of having approvals, but then the CEO still sort of does a final look. And part of it sometimes, and actually I appreciate CEOs that are interested in really understanding the finances of companies. So 
I'm not quick to push them away from that interest. <laughs> that to me, that means that they're engaged and really focused on it. I certainly don't want them to focus to the extent that it takes their focus away from clearly more critical areas. But I do appreciate CEOs that do pay attention to the finances. It's always lovely seeing a really strong leadership team where there's like a strong front end function, like a CEO, and then also like a strong back end function, like a CFO. When I see like a dynamic duel like that, I know that's probably going to be a really strong company. Yeah, it's, it's fun to be part of that when that happens. For sure. Last question, how can startup founders and leaders really continue to lead this healthy spend culture that we've been talking about? and democratize this kind of financial responsibility throughout an organization? What are some cultural things that they can start doing and how can they communicate better with their team? I think that sort of ties back to some of the things that we were talking about a little while ago around transparency with financial information. I'm not suggesting from that standpoint that you open the coffers and let everyone get in QuickBooks and see everything that's happening. But I am suggesting that, especially for startups and especially in the current environment, where there's a lot of concern about it, you know, is our company going to survive? I think giving people a high level view of where does the company currently stand and what are the actions that we're taking? If we are in a challenged position, what are the actions that we're taking to address that? I think people do better when they know more versus when they do less. We don't need to be paternalistic and try to hide that information from them. I think by them knowing they can better participate and, and help the company. So I think that's that's one aspect. I think the other aspect, like we were just talking about, is the idea of distributing ownership of budgets to department leaders to the extent that you do have the CEOs as the only one that owns the budget. A lot of times they, they're the ones that sort of hold the purse strings and feel the ownership over the spend culture. Whereas when you start distributing ownerships of budgets to department leaders, then those leaders start owning it. And then they may, they may subsegment down budgets. You know, they may parse out, you know, their marketing budgets into different categories so the different leaders own different parts of the budget and so they have a sense of ownership. So I think the more that you're able to give people ownership and control, the more that they're part of the spend culture that, that you're trying to promote for the company. And then I think one last thing that delivers a healthy culture is really setting very clear upfront guidelines on what the spending expectations are. Even people who aren't budget owners should be very clear on sort of, you know, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. You know, it's it's much better to tell people up front, it's okay to spend this kind of money traveling than after the fact to sort of slap them on the wrist and said, you spent too much money or that was inappropriate. So, you know, making sure that people are really clear on what's expected of them and what the culture for the company is, I think is really, really helpful. You summarized that beautifully. The transparency part is so important. I know sometimes founders might feel, oh, if I tell them, you know, the truth, would it like decrease more the team morality, right? Like, will it actually be able to cause fear in people, but it's actually the opposite. When people know what's actually happening, that's actually when they can, you know, really buy in and work together, right, as a team. Exactly. And the thing is, is, is if you don't tell them, they expect the worst. Yeah, that's actually true. It's probably going to be better than what they expected. And I've been in many situations. I've worked with a lot of startups. You know, startups always have different, almost every startup has their ups and downs. And the companies that are upfront with their employees and sort of honest about what's going on get much better response from employees, much more loyalty than companies that are holding tight to the vest. And everyone just assumes it's worse than it really is, I think. I love that. So startup founders, if you're listening to this, don't be afraid to tell your team what's actually up. <laughs> well, Debbie, thank you so much for this really awesome conversation today. I found so much actionable insights from this, and I feel like now I'm pretty comfortable with starting it, even though I don't have a finance background because you summarized it so easily. <laughs> well, thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this podcast. I really enjoyed it. 
And I hope everyone who's out there is, is listening. I hope you and your families are safe and healthy during these really challenging times. Thank you, Debbie. And if you wanted to check out Berkeley and Associates website, you can visit them at www.berkelandassociates.com. Thank you guys for tuning in and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in on another episode of Spend Culture Stories. If you like this series, please support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe so you can get notified of the newest episodes. We try to post every episode every Wednesday. This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a software solution that is reinventing the way organizations spend. Procurify allows an accessible and convenient way to request for purchases, get approval from your manager, while allowing your finance team to get the visibility and control you need on every purchase. Learn more about Procurify at www.procurify.com.